Hi, everyone. My name is David Gaujau. Uh, I'm your host for the, today's Warden FinTech podcast. Today, we are welcoming Charles Birnbaum, who is a partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, a $4.5 billion venture capital funds. Charles is in their New York office. He focuses on financial services, consumer and education investments. He's led Bessemer's recent early stage investments in exciting fintech companies. Charles is actively involved with many BVP portfolio companies, including Main Street Hub, Brightbytes, Bread Finance, and August Home. He currently serves on the board of Zopa, United Capital, Fabric, Spruce, and Eve and was involved in the exits of Yodel, Tuyu, and Krollbahn ratings. Charles's startup experience has been important to BVP's early stage financial services portfolios, which includes high potential companies such as Betterment and Quantopian. Prior to joining BVP in 2013, Charles worked at Foursquare uh, for a number of years, and Charles holds a, an MBA from the Warden School, a Master's of Arts in International Studies from the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Bachelor of Arts in History from Northwestern University. Thank you for joining us today, Charles. Happy to, happy to do it. I'm excited that there's a FinTech club that did not exist when I, was, uh, when I was at school. So just to kick us off, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your background, how you got into FinTech investing in the first place. Yeah, well, you just kind of shared a pretty detailed bio, so appreciate that. But, um, you know, started my career on Wall Street and investment banking and capital markets. I kind of consider myself a recovered or recovering investment banker. I always say there should be kind of like an AA group for us, and uh, Wharton's a good place to start it. Um, but I, I kind of went to, to Wharton after six years in, in finance, but I was always focused on technology companies and worked a lot with venture capitalists in that capacity. And I just, I just thought what they did was awesome. And uh, really, instead of going going straight there, my path was, was trying to find interesting company or companies uh, to be a part of so I could kind of complement my finance experience with some operating experience and find a way um, into the venture capital world. I didn't really have a direct plan. And as I'm sure a lot of folks um, at school who have, who have tried to get into the venture market have noticed, it's not, you know, there aren't a ton of jobs. And uh, there's no real clear path. You kind of have to just do interesting stuff. So while I was at school, I um, weaseled my way into a, an internship uh, at Foursquare, which is a mobile app company here in New York. And back in 2008, 2009, when I uh, found, found them, um, it was still pretty early. So there were about 10 people at the company when I joined that summer, and uh, things took off. Uh, back then, there weren't too many um, Warren MBAs who were looking to work at startups in 2009. It was not a, a trendy thing to do. So um, it, it was a great experience. Got Kind of got to see that company go from 10 to 200 people, worked there full-time after school for, for two and a half, three years, had various product and BD roles. And um, the Bessemer guys actually reached out to me uh, about five years ago now, um, looking for someone who kind of had a mix of uh, finance and uh, and operating experience, and with some kind of relationships in the New York tech scene, um, to join as a as an associate here, and just have kind of worked my way up ever since. Can you talk a little bit about how your operating experience at Foursquare has helped you become a successful investor? Listen, we have we have some people at Bessemer who have done nothing but venture capital their entire career. I mean, we we do hire people right out of school. 
Um, my partner Brian Feinstein started here as an analyst uh, right out right out of college and and has done nothing but but venture capital his whole career and and he's a fantastic investor and 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 is a, and is a partner of mine. So there is that path, but but I think many of us um, kind of bring together various experiences and you draw on those experiences when you not only evaluate an investment but you know we take active roles in our companies. So as a board member. Um, someone who's trying to help recruit talent to to our te- uh, the, the teams that we've invested in, helping make strategic decisions when things are going tough or well. Um, you know, I draw on both both my experience from Wall Street, whether it was uh, on the corporate finance side, trying to understand how to financially engineer a situation, or the capital markets when you're trying to access liquidity and whether it's the ultimate goal of an IPO or, or, or interim financing, a lot of that experience does does become pretty relevant as a VC. So that stuff in the MBA, you know, while a lot of people say you don't need it, um, is super valuable. But you know, those three and a half years at uh, at Foursquare, watching it go up and down the hype cycle and um, go from a, a company that that had no business model to to a real business model and um, be the darling of the tech scene to to a company that everyone was really misunderstanding and and kind of crapping on for a while. It was it was a pretty phenomenal learning experience, and I think those those three and a half years make me just a much more uh, confident investor because I can oftentimes uh, walk away from a situation kind of knowing that um, there's a lot of luck involved in the early successes of these companies, and uh, there's a lot of hard work that it takes to really execute. Uh, and keep and keep things going. So, I think it's all relevant. And ideally, before you're a venture capitalist, you have a lot of ex- experiences, so you can draw on all of them, both as when you're making an investment decision, but also when you're you're actually a board member and, and trying to help help the company make key decisions along the way. So, it's it's all helpful. I wish I wish I had more experience before doing this, but at some point, I think uh, you know you de- you definitely do also just learn by by the reps of investing. So and we, we can talk about Bessemer a little bit more because we, we actually have a model of, of apprenticeship. So we tend to grow our partners from within. And I, I only became a partner six months ago uh, after my first four years here as, as an associate and then a VP and then a principal kind of working my way up through the ranks and mentoring under our uh, more senior partners. And I think that model is, uh, is great because it allows you to kind of learn on, on somebody else's, um, decision-making kind of checkbook, and uh, and you learn a lot through the reps of, of just seeing deals go in every direction. Your apprenticeship model definitely sounds like a unique model when it comes to, to venture capital. Can you talk a little bit more about Bessemer, what frameworks you yep. use to evaluate investment opportunities? You know, you've led some exciting investments in, in early stage fintech companies across peer-to-peer lending, alternative lending, title insurance, life insurance, mortgage insurance. Can you talk a little bit about your, your thought process and overall investment thesis when it comes to the fintech sector as a whole? Yeah, so so maybe just to take a step back. So Bessemer, um, you know, we're currently investing out of a $1.5 billion fund, but we're an early stage fund. So there's kind of 15 investment partners that are that are out looking for early stage investments, but because of the size of our fund, we were limited somewhat by um, the size of the opportunity. You know, to move the needle for a fund of our size, it's it's challenging because you have to you have to shoot for pretty big markets. Um, so there's a lot of great entrepreneurs out there and great businesses that just aren't a fit for us because they're kind of focused on on an area that might 
might hit a ceiling before it's um, it's relevant to us. So that's one thing that uh, that kind of impacts the whole firm. But then each each of us as individual partners and, and investment professionals that work with us, we focus on specific areas. And, and fintech uh, is is kind of my main area of focus. I, I do look at a couple others. And within even those broader areas, we we call them roadmaps, and we we're pretty serious about what it what it takes to to invest off a roadmap. So the process tends to be, you know, you spend uh, significant time kind of developing a thesis for an area, whether it's insurance or mortgage uh, or cryptocurrency, um, blockchain. I mean, B two B payments, alternative lending, wealth management, all the various areas within financial services. I kind of have living documents and active uh, roadmaps in each of those areas where not only is it a market map of, of all the stuff we're seeing out there, but it's talking to incumbents, understanding kind of what the what the big opportunities are before we even meet the companies. So when we do meet the companies, we can react in a way that is um, what we call roadmap driven. And within that kind of framework and style, we really don't limit ourselves into how big of an investment we can lead with. So while I've been here, you know, we lead we lead seed rounds with five hundred thousand dollar checks or one and a half million dollar checks, but we're also um can lead a growth round with a thirty or forty million dollar check. So the firm is not um does not limit uh our partners on on what a, an initial check has to be or an ownership threshold. It's it has to be on a roadmap where you have a thesis and have an idea of of where we should be spending our time, and uh, I've done that recently in the mortgage area, and and uh, and some categories within insurance and, and alternative lending, like like you mentioned, and that's really the framework. So within that, we just we try and find the right team and the right inflection point uh, where we think it's a big opportunity and one where we can put meaningful capital to work. Because even if it starts with a small investment, the goal is to to have it be a larger investment over time. Um, I think our investment in in Betterment, which is one where I'm involved, but I did not lead for us, is a great example. It started with a, a small check um, in their Series A, which I believe was a $3 million round back in 2010, um, where we got kind of committed when they were a very small company and we're still today you know, the largest shareholder, uh, despite having raised a lot of capital, because we have the fund to, to kind of support our pro rata along the way and kind of not get diluted. You mentioned that uh, you're looking for, for companies that have the right team. Can you describe sort of what traits really stand out in successful fintech entrepreneurs? So that's a good question. I, I think um, when I think about the entrepreneurs that we've backed, it, it's, not, it's not one background, uh, various, various backgrounds. Some are engineers by training, some are lawyers by training, uh, some are bankers. You know, it's it's a mix of, of the types of people that we're backing. You know, some have MBAs, some don't. Um, I think some of the common threads are in the early stages. And, and you know, the, what an early stage investment can be is is just semantics, whether it's a seed round or a Series A or a Series B. When I would I would argue that when it's like when it's not yet proven that a business business model is viable or that a that there's product market fit or that that team can pull it off. I think what we're looking for is somebody who has that clear vision for how they're going to improve um you know whether whether or not they're disrupting but really make a change and a, make a dent in a in a big industry um and do it kind of with that north star but also recruit great talent along the way i think one of the big challenges in the fintech space is you have to recruit very expensive talent away from places where they're 
very, very well paid. Um, you know, have to get people away from the hedge fund industry, um, people away from large banks and uh, in roles in regulatory and compliance and legal where they're uh, have have serious job security and, and, and high annual compensation to, to believe in your vision in the early stages of a startup where, where that equity has to have has to have value in, in the in the recruiting pitch. So recruiting talent is, is probably the, the biggest thing we look for. You know, kinda of can they not only convince investors but but really the team. So when you look at the team they've brought together, is it is it a diverse team? Is it just people they knew before? Um that's always a great sign. And then this this whole issue of these are often highly regulated industries, and we we don't want people who are afraid of that, but we want people who are, who are very respectful of that and almost make it um, kind of a core competency of the of the business to be um, at the forefront of of regulatory issues and being a thought leader in in, in that way. Um, and uh, I think those are those are some traits we really look for. And then people who are kind of realistic. About how much can be accomplished over over the next kind of set of uh, of quarters that you're you're funding the business for. So, we, when you when you look at how much somebody's going to spend and what they're going to spend it on and how they think about their plan, uh, it's a very good way to understand how they're going to be stewards of capital. Um, typically, when there's a great idea out there in fintech, there's going to be several companies doing the same thing, and you're often back at you trying to back the the team and and the entrepreneur that you you feel uh has those qualities so you know even if competition gets tough they're the ones that are kind of kind of rise above the fray both both when it comes to fundraising uh and recruiting and finding finding customers you also mentioned sort of the the process of creating the these roadmaps can you maybe dig a little deeper and describe sort of what that process looks like? Yes, I mean roadmaps are they're kind of living, breathing, ongoing things here. It's it's not really a static document. Um sometimes we do formalize it and kind of get up in front of the partnership and you know present for an hour where a roadmap stands at a point in time, you know, at an offsite or or an LP meeting or, or something like that, but but they tend to be just stated areas of interest where where we all internally know where each other are spending time. So right now, um, you know, if, if one of my partners is out, out and about or one of our, our, our analysts or associates is out and about and sees something interesting um, in the mortgage industry, uh, an innovative piece of technology or a new approach, they're, they're going to send it my way because they know I kind of have been working on a roadmap in that area for quite some time. And it, it'll start with um, – Oftentimes, a you know maybe a document like a framing, almost consulting type landscape of, of an area, and it, that kind of guides um, your your discovery of, of talking to the existing players in the industry, all the various stakeholders, understanding what the what the issues are, the pain points, where the value accrues in that industry, and then you and then you kind of dive into who's doing interesting stuff out there at all stages, and we don't limit ourselves to only uh seed stage or series A startups we'll talk to to everyone because we're because of our fund size we can we can make investments at any at any stage so um the only way to 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 really learn is by is by talking to all the companies and then ultimately a roadmap continues to evolve once you've started to make investments so now in the mortgage space for example I have two kind of early stage um companies uh one backed by a one started by a Wharton MBA, Jack McCambridge, who um, is running a company called Eve, which is trying kind of a full stack 
digital origination platform, you know, building their own loan origination system and going pretty deep and full stack in that space. But we've also backed a digital title um, insurance brokerage agency called Spruce, um, which was a former team from Betterment that we knew well. And uh, the title insurance piece is is a big part of the the value chain in in the mortgage industry. And those were kind of two two opportunities where we had roadmapped those areas. We knew that there was real opportunity for technology, disruption, innovation. And when you meet a team that has the characteristics that we talked about earlier going after that, and you like the plan, um, it, it puts you in a, in a position to, to kind of make the bet. So that's kind of the evolution of a roadmap and kind of one specific area being being mortgage. But we don't we're not done there. I mean that's that's we're now going to learn from those investments just like in wealth management we've learned from Betterment and United Capital and and Quantopia and other other investments of ours and um it makes you more of an expert having lived through it uh through through a live active investment and um they, those kind of roadmaps continue. Um then there'll be roadmaps where you work really hard on them for a long time and and might not make any investments. Um that happens often and you know, it almost becomes like an anti-roadmap where you've spent so much time, but you, you ended up kind of realizing that we should not be making an investment in that area. And in many ways for us, uh, our, uh, I'm sure a theme that everyone wants to talk about uh, at school these days is, is the cryptocurrency space. And, you know, we as a firm were, were spending time in the area five years ago um, and have looked at pretty much every operating company in the space. And there's there's clearly some some winners out there. Value is accruing to to Coinbase and and Ripple and um, and and Chain and and a couple of of great companies. But there weren't that many um, real opportunities to invest in the equity of great operating startups. And we, as a firm, a few years ago through that road mapping exercise, kind of decided that buying the currency was really the most interesting thing to do for all of us and personal accounts. And you know, really couldn't invest LP Capital at the time in in, in the currency. So we all we all bought them, um, and then have kind of tracked everything since. We we did invest in in uh, Polychain and Metastable to to get access to a lot of the the innovation in in, in the ICO space without having to kind of pick off um, the, the the digital currencies that were that were most most reasonable. We're letting we're letting some experts um, for a while kind of make those bets for us, and now kind of continuing to to scope the landscape for the operating companies that that hit some of the themes in our roadmap. You know, we think there's a lot of opportunity for uh how do you how do you commercialize the asset class in a way that many other uh asset classes have been in the past. Um and and we think there are some interesting opportunities, some some investments we'll be announcing soon. Uh so these roadmaps can be living for a long time without yielding too many investments. You mentioned sort of the the cryptocurrency space. Do you find that our LPs increasingly interested in getting exposure to the the space? Do you see sort of the the overall initial coin offering landscape as a potential threat to the traditional venture capital model? In some ways, in some ways, it has to be. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a non dilutive. Um, very efficient form of financing. So, so it would be crazy for me to say it's not a threat in some regard. I think to say that it, it is the right source of financing for all types of, of early stage operating companies is also crazy. Um, you know, most of these ICOs are, uh, are are pretty crazy concepts and and don't have much um, logic behind the ultimate use case. 
uh, and there's just a lot of frenzy behind it. There is a small portion of them that is quite interesting. Um, you know, you look at something like Filecoin that has a very clear use case. I mean, we're not involved there, but that's, you know, that makes sense. I mean, that's a that's a type of a product that if it works, that, that token, you know, is a, is a reasonable way to, to finance that business um, or, or at least that, that community. And, you know, these protocols definitely could have a lot of value. There will be another opportunity on the application layer um, where I think it'll be more in question whether or not an ICO makes more sense or raising traditional venture capital where you can get uh, a board of, of people who are aligned with the entrepreneurs and trying to, to all drive towards the same goal. There's, there's I, I, Admittedly, there can be some tension there along the way when you're in a startup that has ups and downs, but um, you know, I, I, I'd hate to, to believe that there's no value in it. Otherwise, um, we wouldn't we wouldn't work as hard as we do for our companies. So, you know, I think I think it's a really really interesting uh, part of the market, and I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's going to be uh, ultimately regulated in a way that limits um, limits its attractiveness in the way it's been tapped o- over the last several months. And uh, I think all of these themes are, are very real and, and here to stay, but um, we're, we're just kind of trying to sift through all the noise right now because there's only a handful of, of things that, that we really do feel are uh, are sustainable and scalable. So maybe just taking a step back, what areas of fintech broadly are you spending most of your time kind of researching in? Is there a particular sector within fintech right now that you think is really exciting and yeah, I mean, I think we've covered some of them already. You know, there's been maybe just to focus on um, on insurance. You know, there's been a huge push on, among entrepreneurs in the insure tech, um, quote unquote, uh, area over the last few years. Most of that um, has been kind of distribution related innovation, which, which to be to be frank, I mean, that's actually when you spend time with with the incumbent carriers and reinsurers, is what they're looking for. I mean. Their problem is not product innovation. Obviously, their software systems could could use an upgrade, but that's not an opportunity for 200 companies to go after. But you know, if you can if you can help them acquire customers in 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 a younger demographic and a in the most in, in an aging demographics in a way that they have not been able to in the past. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening there. And and while there's a lot of heat at the early stages, I do think um, there's still a lot of opportunity in insurance to to really help an industry that's very hungry for innovation to to figure it all out. Um I think I think the cyber insurance market is is a really interesting area. We've looked at some some very early stage teams that that have both security backgrounds and insurance backgrounds and I think that's a that's a nascent market that's only going to grow um uh dramatically over the next decade and I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for newcomers there but um so I think you know I could, we could probably go through every every category: payments, uh, alternative lending, wealth management. There's there's still a lot of opportunity, even though there are some some early winners in in these categories. And uh, you know a lot of it is about, in my opinion, kind of there's a rebundling that's going to come from a lot of the winners. And I think there are interesting software and technology businesses that will enable that rebundling. You know, companies along the lines of of a, of a Plaid or a Quovo, what, what they've done with wealth management and and bank account um, verification and opening. I think there's other opportunities within financial services to kind of facilitate the 
technology online rebundling of of offerings the way it's always it's always been in brick and mortar financial services. Um, a lot of these people are doing it with one-off partnerships and building the pipes directly um, directly to a partner that you're that you're working with. And I think there's there's some interesting companies out there in the very early stages trying to solve those problems. How do you think uh, sort of the large incumbent banks, insurance companies, wealth managers, how do you think they're responding to some of these early stage companies that are trying to disrupt their business models? Obviously, when it comes to distribution, I would assume that these large players are looking for opportunities for partnerships, but do you feel that Wall Street or, or large financial services institutions are becoming more open to partnering or potentially acquiring some of the, these earlier stage startups, or is the exit uh, opportunity really these companies going public and and being longer term competitors to these establishments? I think it's similar. I think it's similar to other industries. I don't think financial services is is that unique, except for the fact that one of the attractive things about it is there are many incumbents. It's not like there's one. Uh, dominant player in each category. So you, so you do open yourself up to more exit opportunities, which is why, in many ways, I think you see a lot of entrepreneurial and venture capital activity um, because you don't rely on, on one or two buyers in a given market. So whether it is you know an acquisition like what like LearnVest selling, which is a competitor of our portfolio company, Betterment, you know, they sold quite early in their life cycle to Northwestern Mutual. Um, for a healthy valuation before they had really achieved uh, the type of unit economic and kind of profitability, uh, unit economic attractiveness and profitability that the public markets would require. And they were, I'm sure, quite far away from without knowing too much about that business. But you, know, you can you can exit to a to an existing player like that, or you can raise significant capital if things start to work and you have a compelling value prop and, and go for it. Um, like uh, like others are in the wealth management space. And, you know, when Betterment started in 2009, 2010, a lot of people kind of laughed at that product, but now many of the incumbents have their own version. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a trend that, that will continue over and over. Um, I think in insurance, you're seeing more uh, partnering with incumbents from day one um, because of the nature of the industry. And, you know how capital intensive it is to 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 be full stack on, on you know a couple of people are trying that but you see that and I think there'll be a lot of uh, early acquisitions in that in that category as a result. Um, alternative lending is the one area where I think uh, acquisitions are tougher um, because specialty finance businesses tend to tend to have a different profile and. And alternative lending businesses are really tech-enabled specialty finance businesses, which should should trade at a premium, in our opinion, to uh, to non-tech-enabled specialty finance businesses. But but ultimately, uh, I think Lending Club and 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 Prosper and and Ondeck and and many of the the early significant players have have put a cap on how the private markets are valuing them, which which in many ways I think is a good thing. I think we feel like the pendulum has swung too far back in the other direction. Uh, but you really do see acquisitions being a little bit tough. Um, you know, Ernest was recently acquired by Navient, and uh, there haven't been too many trades uh, in that industry because it's not a natural fit where, um, sure, there's some technology that's quite valuable to the acquirer, but they're not as interested in, in the scale of, of those books of business or, um, you know, or the, the, the origination machines that they're acquiring. 
So just to dig a little deeper on the alternative lending space, and you mentioned sort of valuation, you know, these tech enabled specialty finance companies are, are trading sort of at a premium to more standard uh, non-tech enabled businesses. Do you think, you know, this valuation is, is justified? And do you think that you'll start to see sort of that, that valuation premium continue to exist across tech-enabled finance businesses that are that are going public. I think there's. I think it's it's very company specific. So you know, obviously, lending club and on OnDeck and in unsecured consumer lending and small small medium sized business lending. Um, you know, historically tough markets to 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 withstand capital market shifts and and kind of the tip of the spear for macroeconomic conditions. You know, business like like SoFi. Um, or or other or green sky where there's kind of a unique angle to customer acquisition and they, they've they're in a position to potentially rebundle um, that opportunity and, and do more for their customer. You know, you see SoFi moving into uh, pretty much every category under the sun already um, and applying for a bank license. You know, I think they'll be in a very different position. So so I, I don't think we'll ever know what they would have been valued at or or what the the reaction would have been to. The, the business model at, at IPO um, if they were just a kind of tech-enabled student refinance company at massive scale? Um, it's a great question, and, and I'm, I'm really curious as to what it would be. So we've been, we've been cautious there. I mean, we, uh, I represent us on the board of Zopa, which you mentioned earlier. It's an investment we made long before my time at the firm, but uh, it's a really interesting business because they were kind of the first peer-to-peer lender. Um, they're the dominant player in the UK, kind of the lending club of the UK in many ways. They came before lending club, actually. And um, now we're becoming a bank. So we're going through the process of getting our regulatory licenses in the UK to kind of transform the P&L and, uh, and, and try and become um, a deposit-taking institution for our customers. And that's, that's kind of that rebundling of uh, up and down the stack of, of getting, getting the value chain um, in-house. Uh, which is another way to, uh, to to enhance the value of these businesses and, and kind of live up to the valuation uh, at a later date. So it's um, you know there's there's various ways. I, I, it's it's interesting because I you know for a while we sat out all these uh, alternative lending rounds because they were being valued like software companies. I think now the entire venture capital market is in many ways running away from these businesses and it's there's opportunity because there aren't too many new ones being funded. Um, and the the ones that do have great teams and some real technology and a unique customer acquisition approach, I think are going to be pretty valuable again. Um, not software multiples. They shouldn't be trading at kind of multiples of origination volume like they were, uh, which is how things were talked about a few years ago. Um, but there's a lot of value in the alternative lending space still. It's just um, it's different. It's different than, than some of the other areas of fintech. You mentioned sort of the rebundling and how that's, pushing certain companies to apply for call it bank charters or become more regulated institutions. Do you think that that's, you know, the way forward for a number of these tech enabled businesses to really capture more market share? I think so. I mean, I think that's all, that's always been the way it's worked historically. I mean, I, I mean, I was student of history um, as an undergrad major. and like, I actually think that's quite relevant when you look at financial services. I mean, these things tend to repeat themselves and most of the great, uh, financial financial institutions have rebundled services many times over um, over the years, and I think that's what will happen with uh, fintech players as well. I mean, whether it's 
betterment uh, on the asset side of your balance sheet or SoFi on the debt side of your balance sheet or transfer-wise in your day-to-day. Um, I think all these companies are in a great position to do a lot more for you. And uh, either um, either they just keep growing, doing what they're doing, or they start to offer um, other other value-added services that they can kind of increase LTV without spending more to acquire that same customer. It's a pretty obvious uh, place to go. So I think for the ones that um, strive to be great standalone businesses, that, that is what will happen. But it is a distraction, and it takes a lot of capital to, to, to go down those paths. So it's uh, I think there'll be a bifurcation. Many will try and stay focused and, and uh, find an, find an exit to an incumbent in that category that wants to wants to bring their business into a more modern framework and others will 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 be forced to rebundle in some way, whether it's kind of taking on more of the value chain within an industry or offering more products. My last question is around on, on a more personal level, do you have any recommendations or tips for current warden fintech students who are either interested in launching fintech companies, joining you know, an early stage fintech company or potentially joining sort of a venture capital firm? Yeah, I mean, on the VC side, I think it's just, um, you know, if you have a finance or a consulting background like I did before school, I think I think the best path is to go join a company. Um, I think the, the more you believe in it, the better, the, the earlier stage, the better. Um, hopefully you can live through, through some growth at a company uh, so you can have various roles, ideally. Um, I think that's the slam dunk because whether or not you kind of get rich off the equity in that opportunity, you're certainly going to get rich off the experiences there and make yourself much more attractive to folks in the venture capital industry so you can be analytical but also just know what it's like to to be at one of these companies because that's a lot of it's um, different on the inside than it is in the board meetings. And it's good to know that when you're sitting in, in, in the board meetings and into what's really happening on the on the, on the the floor. Uh, so I think working at a company is really the, the best path into a great job in venture. Um, as, as weird as that sounds, I, I just do think almost targeting the funds that you're excited about and and looking at the companies they've they've invested in early is, is a great approach. That's what I did um, uh, seven or eight years ago, and and it, and it worked. It ended up working out for me, kind of in a circuitous fashion, fashion, but but it did work. And then for the the entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I think we've seen a lot of great entrepreneurship come out of Wharton. It's not a surprise. I mean, the hardworking people that do their homework before they start something. But then it's it's a, there, there's people who've done it before you. So I, I think the key there is to seek out mentorship from other entrepreneurs who are who are one step ahead of you. Um, if you're if you're a seed stage company, you know, get in touch with folks in a in a relevant industry who who are Series A, Series B, um, and have them be a mentor and advisor help you avoid mistakes and, and not waste time on, on certain things. Some things you just got to figure out on your own, but some things that are just part of company building that are pretty repetitive. Um, and uh, that would be my advice there. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Charles. This was fantastic. Awesome. A lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to meeting more folks at school who are, who are interested in fintech over the coming years. That's a, that's a wrap to this uh, Warden Fintech podcast. Thank you for listening.